Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 35. That can be found on page 1098 in your Pew Bibles. Here we read a question coming from an unlikely candidate, an unlikely source. We would not expect such a question to arise from John the Baptist. That's what we'll see in this text today. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing on the reading and the preaching of his word. Lord in heaven, we come before you through your word, and we come before you by the power of the Spirit. And we show forth our humility by recognizing these words are authoritative to us. And we show our humility as well by asking you to reveal them to us, that we would understand them. For we know in our weakness and the hardness of our hearts, often your word can be spoken to us and bounce off unhearing ears or never never find themselves in our minds to, to be contemplated for distraction or the weakness of our flesh. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us in your word and remove these barriers from us. For we desire to see you. We confess that every time we open your word, it is as if we are with Moses on the mountain asking that we could see your glory, for we see it here through your revelation, your perfect word. And so we make the same request that Moses did as well, Lord, show us your glory. We ask this in your great name, amen. Luke 7, beginning in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. 
For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives. What about doubt? What about doubt? Do Christians doubt? Do you doubt? Have you ever had that question come into your mind? Is Jesus the one? Did Jesus live? Was he the Savior? Is he in heaven right now? These type of questions that might nag at us. These type of questions that might cause us to doubt. Doubt can come into our hearts. And yet it should still be answered with an exhortation. It should still be answered with a calling not to continue to doubt, not to turn away and run away, not to find yourself beaten down by that doubt, but to turn to Christ and to cling to Him. You see, we recognize that we do at times doubt, but there is the answer, and it's applied and supplied in this text when Jesus says, Blessed is He, blessed are those who are not offended by Me. And we see all of this in response to a question coming from John, a question coming from one we wouldn't expect such a question to come from. And that's our first point, the question of John, are you the one to come? Are you the one to come? This is what John asks through his disciples. Now, we do have an interpretive decision to make here. There are many who would say that this is not a question coming from John from doubt. That this isn't John doubting, but this is rather John trying to teach his disciples. And so he tells his disciples to go to Jesus and ask him point blank if he's the one to come. And in their response, they would see that Jesus is indeed the one to come. So there are many who would say this isn't John doubting, this is John pointing to Christ. And I would say I understand why they make that interpretation and that decision, and I put that before you as well, but I also put before you that I go a different way with this. I'm not persuaded that that's what this text is saying or that that's where this is coming from in John himself. I think rather the reason we think of that is because we guess how can John say that? We might think, how could John, of all people, one who had proclaimed that this is the one, then ask, are you the one to come? And the reason I'm not persuaded that this is actually John walking in strength as opposed to doubt is because the question itself is always coming from John and Jesus' response is to tell the disciples to go tell John. And the other reason is because we know the Christian heart And we know the weakness of faith at times. And we know the weakness of the flesh. And it would make sense in you, in that understanding, that even one such as John could find himself doubting. But why? Why would John be doubting at this time? Luke doesn't tell us this. Matthew does, that John's in prison. This imprisonment would end with his beheading. He likely was not very optimistic about his own life. He likely was concerned about what was going to happen to the people that he was leaving behind and and the kingdom of God itself, what was going to take place. And when you look at his own teaching and preaching, when you look at the prophecies that John had been fulfilling and that he had even been giving, it is likely that John 
John's expectation of Jesus and his ministry was different slightly than what he saw. Remember, he had proclaimed, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Remember, when the Pharisees came to him, he had said, who told you, you vipers, to flee the coming wrath? He had warned of coming judgment. He had warned of the coming purification that would take place with the Messiah. In fact, the passage that's quoted quoted from Malachi 3 here, in that context, what happens is that the messenger before the Messiah would come, but with the coming of the Messiah would be a purifying fire. Likely, John then expected more of this judgment and justice that wasn't coming. And so, he finds himself confused and doubting and wondering and wanting assurance and confirmation. Is Jesus the one? Is he the one to come? And so I see this, and and many see it with me on this, that John is a believer in doubt. And that we wouldn't necessarily have to see this as, as such a crisis of faith as if he's rejected Jesus, but rather that he's in, he's in pain. He's confused and he wants that assurance. And I think we can all sympathize and grasp with that in our own hearts and life. Jesus, are you the one to come? We can have this doubt when the Jesus that we see isn't the one we expected. That happens to us all the time. When the ministry, when the plan of God, when the work of Jesus and his love for us doesn't correspond to what we would have thought, to the reality that we see, and then this doubt, this questioning, causes us to stumble, and at times it may cause us to stumble even when we have the right theology it isn't always the right theology that, that, or I should say it this way, it's not that we sometimes have wrong theology that causes us to doubt, but it's right theology misapplied. Here's what I mean. What John thought about the coming of the Messiah was true. Judgment and justice and purifying fire would come, but this wasn't to be in his first coming, but his second You see, what got perhaps John into trouble here was thinking of the true doctrines of justice and judgment, but misapplied in his own time scale. And we can do the same when we think of the blessing that is ours to inherit, the love of God, the glory that we expect to inherit, and yet right now we don't see that. And so it's not a wrong thinking that God will be just or that he would give to us glory and blessing and take away our pain, but rather an issue of our timing. That it's not the time yet. That can be the source of our dilemmas and our problems when we, when we suffer, when we think, well, I thought the lordship of Christ would mean generational blessing and not that my loved ones would walk away. I didn't expect Jesus' lordship to be destruction in in my life or pain. I didn't expect the lordship and blessing of Christ that's so promised in God's word to bring me through this depression or this anxiety or what have you. You see, when Jesus leads us in these ways and we have the theology of, well, we're supposed to be blessed, you know, the error we create, it's the error of Job's friends. Where yes... The Lord will bless. Yes, the Lord will judge. Yes, these things will happen. But we have to understand they happen according to his plan and not always according to our timetable. 
And so beware of that, people of God. Beware that you don't doubt the Lord and question faith because you have different expectations or you've applied these promises of God incorrectly in ways that don't happen right now but will happen later. We are not in that time, for example. So we can sympathize with John's doubts. We can sympathize with that question, Jesus, are you the one? And, and every one of us at some time in our life have already likely made such a, a, a question, asked such a prayer. Maybe you're doing that right now with what you're facing in life, or, or maybe that's going to happen to you yet in the future, but remind yourself of this text, remind yourself of John who asked the same question, not because he didn't believe, but he needed strength. And we ask the same. And so we see how Jesus responds to this question, to his doubts. Verse 21, In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. So you see Jesus doing all these activities. The disciples of John are, are witnessing this. He heals all of them, these, these blind men, these demon-possessed, the plague-ridden, the diseased. He heals and then he answers them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Why does Jesus answer it in this way? This language here that Jesus is pointing the disciples of John to is the language of Isaiah, of Isaiah 35, of Isaiah 61. And in these texts, it was associated with the coming of the Messiah and the time of fulfillment that would see the deaf receive their sight, that would see the lame walk, that would see the diseased healed. And so Jesus points to these prophecies of, of Isaiah that pointed to his own fulfillment, the fulfillment of the Messiah that he would bring, and says, this is happening right now. I just did it. Isaiah 35, 3-6 says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 we're familiar with by now. This is the text that Jesus had preached at Nazareth when he proclaimed that he was the one to come. Isaiah 61, 1-2 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see then what Jesus is doing. These texts that apply to me, the one to come, are fulfilled right now in your sight, in your hearing. Here is what is done. The poor receive good news. The poor of the world are blessed and healed. Go and tell John what you see. In other words, Jesus is telling John himself through his disciples, look what's happening. The salvation of the Lord is here. Fulfillment has come, which amounts to, I am indeed the one to come. But you see what Jesus didn't just do. 
He didn't just tell the disciples, go back and tell John, yes, I'm the one. What he did is he brought him to Revelation. He brought him back to the Old Testament scriptures and showed how he was fulfilling it. He is the one to come. Look at what you know, John. Look at these texts. Look at what is happening. I'm the one to come. Jesus then ends his response with that exhortation that we also all need, all of us who are doubt need to hear this. It's a beatitude, a single beatitude, a single blessing. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. That Greek word offended is the word skandalizo. It's the Greek word. You can hear in that word itself the English rendering of scandalized or scandal. Blessed is he who is not scandalized by me. What is he saying? That word really means blessed is he who does not stumble over me, who, who does not cause himself to stumble over me, or who isn't offended by me. That's what Jesus is saying, that you will be blessed if you don't see in Jesus a stumbling block, but rather you cling to him, that one is blessed. And to a doubting Christian's heart, to a doubting believer's heart, this is where we go. Go to God's word. And see that Jesus is the fulfillment. When you doubt, go to the Gospels and read it. They were made, they were created with the purpose that you would know the way of salvation and that you would know these things happen. That's why even Luke is writing his Gospel to Theophilus, that he would have certainty concerning the things he was taught. It's why Luke wrote Acts. It's why Luke wrote this Gospel that we would have life by Jesus' name. And so turn to the Gospels, turn to God's Word, see that Christ is the fulfillment of them, and hear this exhortation, blessed is the one who does not stumble over Jesus, because Jesus is a stumbling block. Not to the faithful, not to believers. They don't find in him the stumbling block, but, the, but unbelievers do. Even later in this text, which we'll get to, the Pharisees, the lawyers, they find in Jesus a stumbling block. They're offended by him. They're scandalized by him. The answer to a doubting Christian is to cling. Cling to Jesus. And, and that's the way that God tells us to go. And it brings to us blessing. As you are in doubt, even with Jesus' identity, even in your own faith, as you cling to him, the Lord strengthens your faith. The Lord uses such doubt to further confirm in yourself that this is the truth. That's why when questions of doubt do come, don't run in fear. Often, what I've seen, what I've even experienced, is that in hearts that truly love the Lord, such questions cause great panic and great fear. What if what I is the closest thing, the most important thing to me? What if, what if the one who means the most to me in Jesus Christ, what if he wasn't the one that fear brings to us often great amounts of anxiety and suffering because we do believe, because it is our only hope, and so such a thought makes us afraid. So how do we respond, cling to Christ in every way, look to his word? That's what Jesus has done. Look at Isaiah Look at Isaiah, John, and look how I fulfill it. And don't be offended by me. Is Jesus a stumbling stone to us because we want from him something more or something else? 
He can be a stumbling block for us in that way. We don't want what Jesus is offering. We don't want what Jesus is selling. There's the Pharisees. Don't stumble over Christ. Embrace him in humility. Bring your will in align with his will. Shape your expectations with what God's word says and what Jesus has revealed. Because if your expectation is other than what God's is, he will root that out in your life. And you will at times go through doubt as, as the Lord's plucking those weeds from our hearts. We must have our will in line with his. And so that's John's question. And then the text shifts. In our second point, we see this greater than the greatest. We see this conversation. You see the disciples of John leave. They go back to John. And now Jesus turns to those who were around, those who had witnessed this question, it seems. Maybe they even heard what the disciples of John had asked. And Jesus responds to them. And now he makes John a topic of conversation. And there's there's a couple reasons for this. One is, it seems, he's defending John. Perhaps those around had heard of John's question and had wondered about John, and now Jesus actually declares that John's the greatest of all those born of women. And so there's this way in which Jesus has responded and addressed the doubt, but now he turns to those around and he says, What did you go out to see? Who did you go out to see and why? Who is this John? He has these purposes, and this dual purpose not only shows John's greatness, but it also sets up something better, something even greater than John, in what Jesus has brought forth. So he begins first with John, and he asks why they went out to the wilderness. He says, was it to see a reed shaken by the wind? Did you go out to that wilderness to see the, 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 pl- the flowers and plants, to see the wilderness itself? Did you go out to see the reeds there? Were you on a sightseeing tour, a hike? Is that why you went out there? And then there's likely a bit of irony here. A little bit of irony since John was not one so weak, such a reed shaken by the wind. But he asks, is this what you went out to see? The wilderness itself, the reeds, is that why you went? Obviously, no. And so he asks another question. Did you go to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Well, what's this? Did you go to see one regal? Did you go see, go to see one uh, at the height of, of current fashions or wealth or power? Did you go out to see one who was a splendid sight? Well, no, obviously. This is, this is actually humorous because we know John wore camel's hide, that, that John ate locusts, that, that he wasn't like this at all. Why then did they go? Jesus even said, you won't find the splendid of the world, the, the, uh, those arrayed in great robes, those who are sights to see, you won't find them in the wilderness. They're in palaces. Why then did you go out? He declares that they went out to go see a prophet, and yet, yes, more than a prophet. This is the prophet of Malachi 3. This is the messenger of God who prepares the way of the Lord himself. That's who they went out to see. And then declares, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. John represents a position greater than anyone else who belongs to the Old Testament. And this isn't because the deeds of John his miracles that he performed or the power that God worked through him was was the greatest that happened in the Old Testament. That's not the point. It's a characterization of the role itself, of the message. That's the key. 
The prophetic message is the important point here. Who was the greatest of all? Well, it was John. Why? Because he had the greatest message to give. He was the pinnacle of all the Old Testament prophets. The pinnacle of what anything in the Old Testament could offer because he prepared the way of the one. His close proximity to Jesus himself made John the greatest herald, the greatest prophet that had ever been seen to that point because his message was that the kingdom of God is here, that the one has come. So he's the greatest. He he occupies that highest position. And again, what's that referring to? It's referring to really the fact that he prepared the way. He was that herald walking before, saying, the king approaches, the king is coming. No message of the Old Testament compares. No message of the Old Testament comes close. So John's the greatest. But then we see something truly amazing. Jesus says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Well, what is this saying? This isn't a question of of righteousness. The least in the kingdom of God is, is the greatest righteous person, more righteous than John, that's not the point. Nor is the point that the, the one least in the kingdom has, has a greater position in the sense of, of a prophetic office to fill. That's not the point either. This is not a question of individuals. It's not as if there's this ranking system that we have, have this, who's the, the greatest in the kingdom, and okay, well, well, Jesus has to be at the top, but then maybe we'll throw in John, and then we'll throw in Elijah, and we'll rank everyone. That's not what's going on. What Jesus is comparing here are eras of redemptive history. What Jesus is comparing here is a greater station, a greater position, a greater standing as compared to another. The point is to stress the greatness of what Jesus has brought in. For what he is saying is this. The least of the kingdom of God, the least one in what I am setting up, the poorest of the poor in my kingdom find themselves in a greater position, find themselves greater than John the Baptist himself, the greatest of the great. As exalted as John's position was as the herald, to just be in the kingdom of God itself is greater. This is not a commentary that John isn't part of the kingdom. Jesus is making a point. He's illustrating to those there, even as it says in the text, the tax collectors who are there, those least, who had embraced the message of John, who had embraced the message of Jesus, he is declaring that such as these are even greater than John, are even greater than the prophets of old because they're in the kingdom of God himself, because what Christ has brought in is greater you see, why, why, why do we need to hear this message? What's the point? It's so that we would see the kingdom of God and that we as members in it find ourselves in the greatest position, find ourselves in the greatest place. Here's an illustration of it. Think of, think of World War II. Think of the, the way the Nazis had conquered other countries. They would set up their rule there and there was the resistance, there was the rebellion. We've heard about that. There was the underground. They would fight against the Nazis in the way that they could. Well, think of of that like the Old Testament almost. Think of it as if you can think of the greatest hero of the rebellion, of the underground, of those who opposed the Nazis. 
Let's pretend that there was this one figure who stood out among them all. He was the greatest. And the comparison, though, is is into what Jesus has brought in the kingdom. It's like what the allies brought in when they came in and conquered, when they defeated, when the underground and rebellion and resistance wasn't needed anymore. Freedom had come. And then in this way, we could say the least of those in the freed country was greater than the hero of the rebellion. The position, the standing, is, is not even comparable because Jesus brought in the kingdom of God and so the least in it are the greatest. That's the point. And that's what we're heirs to. That's, that, that's our heritage. That's our blessing to be in that blessed kingdom of God. Why does this then matter so that we understand the greatness of the kingdom, so that we could even hear the words of Jesus to you? You, who believe in the Lord Jesus, are greater than John. Now, again, we don't mean that in in this ranking system. We mean that, that you are heirs to something. You see and have witnessed something far greater. The Old Testament talks about how the prophets of old and angels long to look at the revelation we have. We have seen the Spirit of God at Pentecost. We have seen the Spirit of God's work through the church. We have the New Testament and Revelation. The mysteries of the old have been made clear. There's that classic example and illustration like the Old Testament is a dark room and and there's a light coming from the the, the shade. The shade's closed. It's It's a blackout curtain, let's say. And you know what's frustrating about blackout curtains, at least the ones I have? The, the edges of it still let in the light, and, and, and it's frustrating, you know? It's like, I wanted it totally dark, and there's still a little light. Well, that's like the Old Testament. It's dark in the room, but there's light coming through. There is revelation. You can vaguely see and be aware of what's going on. And the New Testament, the shade's up. The light has dawned. We can see it all. This is the kingdom of God. We see who Christ is. We see this revelation. This is part of it. And then look at Luke's comment. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, or they declared God right, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So you see the point here. Those who had accepted John's message, the faithful, those who were the disciples of Christ, who had been baptized by John, who had received it, who followed the bridge. John is a bridge from the Old Testament to the New. They walked across the bridge and now are heirs of what's better. They're heirs of what's greater. They've walked the bridge. And so they declared God just. They declared God right. This is the will of the Lord. He has done what is right. They praised the Lord and responded to him in belief. But not the Pharisees and the lawyers who rejected the purposes of God. They rejected John. They never crossed the bridge. That's what it's meaning. You have to cross the bridge from the old to the new. John prepared the way. And if you don't take that route, if you don't, if you don't turn away from what was just the old to what is better and new, well, you won't know the kingdom of God. You're, you're stuck in the past. 
This is what Jesus has been saying up to this point. Remember how he talked about old wine and wineskins and new wine and that it can't contain it? The kingdom of God cannot be contained in the past. And so those like tax collectors and the least, they were blessed that they had been baptized by John. They received Jesus' message. They saw it and believed. Jesus may not always be what we expect, but when you are not offended by him, when you're not scandalized by him, you walk across the bridge and he is no stumbling stone. Rather, you enter the greatest period you could know. And we see that at work. But then we see a warning. This is where the text ends. And our third point, we see this in spoiled brats. It's the best way to characterize what we see here. Spoiled brats. Because John and Jesus are rejected by these, we see for some that God's revelation is never enough. For some, anything that God can do or any messenger that he can send will not be received, and they'll critique it. The Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God. They're offended by him. They retain to what they want. And so Jesus says this, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Borrowing from another, he characterizes this and says, The best way to describe this is the parable of the brats. What's this generation like? It's like those who will not accept John or Jesus' message. They are like bratty children. They don't like the tune that is played. They don't like the game. They want to change the rules. What has come to them, they don't find attractive. And they won't contribute, and they won't play, and they won't participate unless it is what they want. Unless it fits their desires. They never like the song played. They never participate. The Pharisees and lawyers don't wish to enter the game. Putting it this way, then, we can say God can never win with them. God can never win with them. He can never please them. They want it played and they won't participate unless it's played according to their rules. Every messenger and message and revelation from God that God had sent, they reject, they turn away. And that's what they say. They they reject John. Why did they reject John? They even said he has a demon. Perhaps as an explanation for his behavior, this radical behavior, this radical denial, this austere life. How could he even survive that way? He must have a demon. This is what they said. You see, John came in and he he was pure, but radically so. He lived such a life to the law and such... In, in such obedience that he would not even extend liberty. He, he had a radical way of eating. He restrained himself. And the Pharisees and lawyers says he's gone too far. In fact, he's probably demon-possessed. So John's not good enough. We won't accept John. And the Pharisees and lawyers didn't. Especially John, who had the audacity to tell them, repent and be cleansed, be baptized. You tell us, lawyers and Pharisees, that we need to repent, that we need to be cleansed. You, you put us like Gentiles who need to be pure. We're the pure. They reject John's message. They're spoiled brats. This is God's revelation. This is the greatest of the great to them. He's not good enough. What about Jesus? Well, he comes in and he eats and drinks, and they say he's a drunkard. He's impure. He, he has friends with sinners. 
He drinks too much. He eats too much. Here's the opposite problem. We reject him. He's not pure enough. They won't hear any message from God unless it's the message they've created. We need to be warned that we don't fall into this as well, that we are not these spoiled brats. You see the progression of the text. You have this believer's doubt and this question that turns to the word of God that tells you to cling to Jesus and not find in him a stumbling block. And then the text progresses to Jesus to explain how great is the kingdom that he's bringing in, how great the blessing is to not stumble over Jesus and rather enter the greatness of the kingdom of God. And then it ends with those who do doubt, but aren't like a believer who's doubting. They, in fact, have been offended by Christ. They've stumbled and they don't enter the kingdom. They don't receive that blessing. Be warned. Be warned that in your life and in your doubt, that you don't find yourself like these who wouldn't participate, who wouldn't believe because it wasn't what they wanted, wasn't what they had expected. Trust the Lord. Look how it ends, though. Verse 35. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is justified by all her children. What a reversal of the text. What this is really saying is those like these tax collectors, the lowest of the kingdom of God, are now the true wise. They are the ones who justify wisdom. And what does it mean to justify wisdom? It means to portray it, to reveal it, to bear witness to it. Who are the wise? The lowest in the kingdom of God. Those who have followed the bridge of John the Baptist have have not been offended by Christ, who've entered the kingdom. They are the wise. They are those who have declared God right and just. And so in these Pharisees' minds, those who wouldn't participate, they're the fools. And Jesus likens those who follow him like these tax collectors to those who are the children of wisdom. All those who believe in Jesus... All of us who who hold our faith in Christ and don't stumble over him, you are the children of wisdom. You even bear witness to it. You reveal it to be true. Wisdom of God, the fear of the Lord, that's what's found in you. That's the response. If you doubt, do not be offended by Jesus, for we know greater fulfillment in Christ than the greatest of the old. Don't be scandalized by Christ. Don't doubt. Don't turn from him. Trust in Jesus. Be wise children of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we are awed by what we see here. We see in response to a question, a question of your very identity, we see that we are to turn to your word, to trust it, to see that you, Lord Jesus, are in fact the fulfillment. You are the one to come. You are fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. You have set up what is the greatest. And we are awed and humbled by what you've given to us poorer people, that we could be considered having inherited a greater time, a greater era of redemption than the greatest of the old. That the kingdom of God is so great that the least in it find themselves in a far greater position than any before. 
Lord, we praise you as well for this warning that we would not stumble over you, that we would not be scandalized, and that we would be children of wisdom, having heard and repented, having believed, having had waters of baptism placed over us, waters of cleansing in Christ. We've responded and are thus heirs of the kingdom itself. We do pray, Lord, even as we doubt in our life, that you would give to us strength, that you would help us to cling to the hope and our only comfort in Jesus Christ himself. And Lord, may we then experience the blessing of the kingdom of God, having clung so closely to him in this life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.